And this is our great opportunity to give thanks to God, to remember what he has done for us, and just to start fresh uh, at the beginning of a new week. So let's just bow our heads together. Let's ask for God's presence and blessing with us today. Father, how wonderful it is to know you and how awesome it is to have the opportunity just to get together as a body uh, in your presence, to bring our to bring our cares and our, our worries and just lay them at your feet. And just to remember how good and great and mighty you are. Father, may you just uh, encourage us this morning. May you remind us of who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And uh, welcome to Creekside. I see some familiar faces from uh, a while ago. Good to see you all here this morning. And before I get started in the sermon, just an announcement about next week's missions offering. Each quarter we take a special offering for our missionaries we support. And we have seven missionary couples around the world that we support. And you can see all their faces out in the hallway there. Lori Elric did a beautiful job putting up pictures and names of all of the core missionaries we support. Uh, two of those seven families are ones that we, as a church, Creekside Church, have commended to the work of the Lord in other countries. That's exciting for me because I can think back 10, 15 years ago when that was our heartfelt prayer, that the Lord would raise up missionaries from our church to go out into the world. And uh, we see now my sister Lois and her husband Lucas serving in the jungles of Liberia and the rainforest there in a Muslim village. And we see Pablo and Bethany Calderon serving in Romania uh, so that's exciting. So just look at their faces again, pray for them, uh, and then give generously to support their work. Pablo told me this past uh, week or two ago that he and Bethany, as well as Dan and Georgiana Akins, who they partner with the ministry in Romania, and we support them as well, are going on a music ministry trip across the country of Romania soon. And they're trying to raise some funds for that. So just be in prayer for that and uh, give generously towards that project. I'd still love to see Lucas and Lois be able to build a house out there in the rainforest. Um, right now, they're kind of just living in a room with the school, and so people are always kind of peeking in, no privacy, and I just think, man, I wish my sister had a house out there, and maybe we could help, help that happen if we give generously and support the Lord's work there. Okay, I'm going to open in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for your word. It is your word. This is your church. You are the chief shepherd. You are the one who has given us clear direction and rules and guidance and encouragement for life, every area of life, including these difficult subjects we're tackling in this, this series on gender and roles and marriage and divorce. And Lord, just give us help in that, to hear your word with an open mind and heart, to receive it, um, and Lord, to wrestle with it and to ultimately, Lord, be faithful to obey and follow your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Could I ask that we stand for the reading of God's word this morning, if you're able to? Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. And the Lord God said, It is not good for that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. 
And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. You can sit down. May the Lord add the blessing to his word. Uh, For the first half of this message, I'm going to take the happy path and talk about the pureness of God's original design and intention for marriage and relationships as we see here in Genesis chapter 2. And it's refreshing to me to look at it this way in chapter 2. It's before sin entered the world, before all the problems, and we just see marriage as we received it from God and how it was intended to be his purpose in our relationships before all the problems. And then in the second half, uh, as is the intention of this series to do, to hit it where, the, where, the, where it meets the rubber meets the road in our culture and tackle some of the issues we see around us because of sin in our, in our world. So when you read Genesis chapter 1 in the first part of chapter 2, you see sort of a thumbnail, fingerprint, over, high-level overview of creation. And then in chapter 2, he talks about the Garden of Eden and the conditions of the world at that time and the work God gave Adam to do. And then you get to the end of chapter 2 here, and God zooms in a little bit, you know, um, just takes a, an extra little bit of time to explain a very special part of his creation. You know, at the end of day 6, what did God say about his creation? When he looked at everything he had done, what did he call it? Not just good, but very good, right? After he was done with everything, looked at everything he had made, he called it very good. But earlier on that day, that last day of creation, day six, and we interpret these as literal day and night, day six, God said something was not good. Now, it's not that there was something bad or wrong about his creation or something was just not right about it, or or he didn't do it quite right and needs to redo something, but something was not good in that something about the circumstance, the conditions of the world, and for his special creation man, Adam, was not complete yet. And he said it was not good that man be alone. And you know what that first tells me is that God designed man even before sin entered the world and there were no problems, no sin, He designed man in such a way that he was incomplete by himself, that he had a need to be complete. He needed someone to complete him. And God said he would make a helper that would be just right for him. Now, the word helper doesn't mean that this helper would be in any way inferior to him. Steve talked last week about how Galatians 3 says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, there nor male nor female, but all are one in Christ. So in value, in worth, we men and women are equals before God. And Adam, though, needed someone to compliment him. He needed someone to compensate for him in God's design. And God created him that way. And so he said he would give him a helper. Now, helper doesn't mean a second-class status. The Holy Spirit is referred to a helper. In John 14, he says, Jesus says, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth. And we think 
we know from the scripture's teaching that the Holy Spirit is equal with God the Father and God the Son, so in no way inferior, but has a different role in the Godhead. And so, too, men and women have different roles, equal in value and in worth in the sight of God, but different roles. Last week, Steve talked about some of the contrasts between men and women from a physical, biological standpoint, that he created them male and female. And there's a lot of confusion in our day and age about that. And he, I'm glad he tackled some of that. But we're going to keep opening up the can of worms even wider this week towards the end of this sermon on that. Uh, now, men and women are equal, but they are different, and those differences are good. Those differences are good to be celebrated. You know, our culture wants to make everything equal in every way. But God created us different. He created us male and female. He created male to not be complete on his own, that he would need a helper. That's hard for us males sometimes to accept, isn't it? That we want to be self-sufficient and do things our way. And that, that's, that's part of God's hardwiring too, but it's mixed in with some sinful attitude and behavior at times. But we have been wired and designed to need a helper. That's how God intended it. But then that before he creates this helper... He, he does something else for most of day six. God doesn't just right away create Eve and poof, there she is. There's his perfect helper. But he, he lets several hours pass by and gives Adam a very busy job to do before that. The next two verses talk about this special arrangement God had where God would bring all the animals before Adam and he was to name them. And I kind of asked myself, why would God do this? Why would he delay the arrival of Eve, this helper that he needed, and have Adam spend so much time naming all the creatures. Have you ever thought about that? He says here, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. And then it's kind of like a sad lament at the end of this. It says, But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. So critics out there, Joe Critic will challenge this and say, oh, it would have been impossible for Adam to name all the creatures of the earth in one day. Well, so here's your science lesson. <laughs> uh, first of all, Adam was only told to name the animals and the birds of the air, right? He didn't have to name all the fish and the insects and every single living thing, but the animals, the land animals and the birds of the air. We also see in the creation account that not every variation of animal and creature that we have today we see that God created them according to their kind. And so it was a higher level. There weren't as many creatures to name. Now, because of microevolution and variation, and notice I say microevolution, not macroevolution, we have a lot of variation in our species today, but back then it would have been an easier task. And when you think about it, you could walk through a zoo with a lot of land animals and birds in one day, right? And see most of what there is to see. So... Also, think about this. Before sin, Adam was a perfect man. He would have had the mental capacity of an untainted mind and ability. And he would have been able to quickly come up with the names and name them all with a greater capacity than maybe we can today because of how sin has affected us. Okay, so moving on. How God caused them to come to Adam, I don't know, but it would have been a very impressive sight if you can picture the scene. God bringing all the animals before him, all the variety I'm sure Adam uh, was very impressed with that. And how quickly he would have realized how different he was from all of them. It says, but for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. You know, 
okay, back to science for just a second because I can't help myself. But it, it says there's not a helper comparable to him. If evolution was correct, there likely would have been a helper comparable to him. There would have been a gradual evolution of creatures. But when he looked out and God brought all the animals before him and him that he was to dominate and rule over, he quickly realized how superior and how different he was in relation to all of them. Now, I've heard in biology class before that man and primates are something like 99% identical in their DNA structure. But you know, that 1% makes all the difference. Uh, man is vastly superior and different and more complex than the greatest, most evolved, if that's your point of view, creature. But perhaps most significantly, Adam observed that all the creatures coming before him were coming two by two, male and female. And there was no helper like that for him. No one at his level of complexity, no one who could reason with intellect and will and make moral decisions like him, no helper just like him. And so God allowed him to see that. Uh, Ken Fleming, one of my former professors at Emmaus Bible College in his retirement years, has written some Bible commentaries one on Genesis, I'd highly recommend. It's very good. And he says about this, that God allowed Adam to see that it was not good for man to be alone so that when Eve was created, Adam was thoroughly prepared to appreciate her. That's kind of a neat thought, isn't it? He had to spend all day naming the animals, kind of building up that anticipation and excitement. And some of you have waited for a while to get married. You understand that, um, the how you can appreciate that wait. I, I've had a, a sister, too, who married later on than the rest of us. Uh, three of us married in our early 20s, and she married around 30. And, you know, Lucas was not even saved yet all those years. And I just think to how she had to wait for a while longer. But God, during that time, was preparing the right leader, the right complement for her. He had to get saved. He had to be discipled and spend some time on the missions field for a little bit before he was just right for her. And so, you know, single people, um, don't get discouraged if you haven't found your suitable helper yet. Maybe God is preparing just the right person for you. Okay, then the next part of the story gives special attention to that work of God, that special creation on day six where he creates woman. Look in verse 21. It says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Notice several things about God's creation of a woman, a helper for him. We notice, first of all, he caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, took part of his side, perhaps a rib, it just says from his side in the original, closed the flesh, and made the part of Adam's side into a woman. This is obviously not an afterthought. He made the animals, and Adam from the dust of the ground, but for Eve... The special creation, this woman created by God, he took, he, there's a special account how he took the part of Adam's side and, and made her into his helper, a perfect woman. And I've, uh, I came across this quote and I couldn't find the original author of it, so I apologize about that, but uh, one person attributed it to Matthew Henry, the well-respected Puritan writer from long ago. He's poetically suggested why God took material from Adam's side and nowhere else. And I thought it was kind of a neat thought here. He says, in the Bible account, the creation woman was not formed from part of man's head, suggesting that she not rule over him or be superior to him, nor from a part of man's foot, suggesting that she was not to be trampled under his feet. 
Woman was taken from man's side, as though to emphasize the fact that she was always to be by his side as the partner and companion he would love and cherish and protect. Isn't that kind of a neat thought? Well, the order of creation is also used in Scripture to teach us some important theological truths, how Adam was created first and then Eve. Um, We see that in 1 Corinthians 11, that the order of creation is used to teach us that man is the head of the woman. And in the church, in 1 Timothy 2, in the church responsibilities. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 11 for just a minute here. In verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And then in verses 7 to 9, it says that man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. And in verse 12, for as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things from God. And so the apostle uses the order of creation here to teach a theological truth that in a husband-wife relationship, that as, just as there is no inferiority or inequality in the Godhead, they have different roles. The son is subject and submissive to the father. The father is head. And so too in the husband-wife relationship, the man is the head of that relationship and wife to be submissive to her husband. And then in the church, we see in 1 Timothy 2, that he, the Apostle Paul writes, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man in the context of the church, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they, her children, continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. So the apostle is using the order of creation to teach us that the basis of man's authority to preach and teach and lead in the local church. It says the man was created first and then Eve. Um, so again, no inequality there, but God has designed men and women different with different roles. And in the home and in the church leadership roles and preaching and teaching roles, that's to be done by the men. Now, I would say that there are definitely many women who have gifts, spiritual gifts of teaching and leadership. And I love seeing them use those gifts in other contexts, uh, leading women's Bible studies and teaching children and, and leading vital ministries for the church. I mean, we would not function very well if women did not use their teaching and leadership gifts and the capacity God has designed them for. But when it comes to the roles of elder and deacon and preaching and teaching in the mixed congregation of the church, the scripture is clear that men are to exercise that authority. And the basis of that goes back to Genesis 2, the passage we're looking at this morning, the order of creation. Um, now, that, that said, headship and order of creation doesn't mean that Adam and all men to come after him were to rule over women in a harsh, domineering way. I would say that's probably what gives women the most concern and pause over this teaching is, is how they've sin, seen that sinful behavior and attitude from men over the centuries. But we know in Christ, that's not the attitude God wants us men to have in the home or in the church. Not to rule in a harsh, domineering way, but to lead lovingly in our homes and in our church. Okay, back to Genesis 2. And we see God himself performing the first wedding ceremony of all time. You know, when you see a wedding, and especially in a traditional Christian wedding ceremony, when a father walks the bride up the aisle and gives her over to the new husband. 
there's a lot of symbolism, beautiful symbolism in that. And, we, and it starts here in Genesis 2 where God performs that ceremony. He creates Eve and he brings her up the aisle, so to speak, to Adam and presents this perfect helper, this beautiful woman to Adam and performs that first marriage ceremony. We're not told exactly what God said to them here, but we do see what Adam says about it. And it's sort of a celebration, you know. Um, Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And I think that's probably an exclamation. More, maybe it could be called the first poem or first love song from a man to a woman in the Bible. And it's here with this first relationship, Adam and Eve. And uh, I got a little video clip, and this is, um, I, I picked this one out because it's a championship celebration in sports LeBron James 2012 NBA championship. And normally I like it when it's a Christian and they go up and thank the Lord Jesus Christ for their victory. But this is, ranks right up there. And I think maybe this is a little bit what like, Adam would have felt like on that day when he received his new bride from the Lord himself. We'll see if this video works. Here. Former E champion Alonzo Morning, the congratulations. All the work, all the practices, all the film sessions, all the extra shooting. Ends in unbridled joy. The 2012 NBA title will reside in Miami. I, I love that because usually they're out there giving their bro hugs and back slaps and dumping water on each other, all the different things. But he just kind of let it loose like a little boy out there, not caring who was watching, just unbridled joy, celebrating this championship. And I kind of wonder if a little bit like maybe that's what Adam would have felt like. You know, receiving woman. He had been spending hours all day long naming all the animals. And no one was comparable. No one was just right for him. And then finally, there's Eve right before him. And God brings her specially made just for him to complete him and compensate him. And, and then he's celebrating. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. When you look at the Hebrew word for man and woman there, the Hebrew word for man is ish. And the, the word for woman is kind of like it. He names her after himself, but it's Isha. And the root of that word is soft. So when at, he had been naming animals all day and coming up with a unique word for all of them. We don't know what those names are. Probably not giraffe, zebra, or, the, or even the Latin words. But when he names woman, he's, he, he names her Isha, uh, soft. That was his first observation about her. And he names her after that quality that he saw in her. I think that's kind of neat. The, when the great reformer Martin Luther fully understood this passage and his freedom to marry in Christ, he did so, and he would affectionately call his wife Catherine Kitty, my rib. That's kind of neat. Let's look at verse 24. Now we get to the last couple of verses here, and this is uh, from the Lord, of course, but Moses, who collected the writings, the oral traditions and teachings of that time and certainly direct revelation from the Lord. But Moses put together what we call our first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He collected those and wrote a lot of it. And this may be his comment here, but it's inspired by God, of course. And this is what he says, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So we're going to camp here a little bit and um, leaving the happy path just a little bit and addressing some of the issues in our culture because 
of sin and how sin has left a wreckage in our lives um, for centuries. Well, first, a couple comments about leaving and cleaving. Um, God teaches right from the beginning that the man and the woman were to leave their parents and join together and never be separated. That's very clear from this statement. The apostles quote it throughout the New Testament, this verse here. The Lord quotes it in Matthew 19. And so this is a vital verse for us today to form our worldview of relationships and marriage. And so we're going to spend some time on it. Uh, first of all, what does it mean to leave? There's a book by William McRae called Preparing for Your Marriage. It's a little bit older now, but it's very, very good. And he says, first of all, geographically leave. Like, when you get married, get out of your home, right? Geographically leave. Um, marriage experts uh, Ray and Deborah Barone from the TV, TV show Everybody Loves Raymond were one time drawing out on a map where they wanted to live. And uh, there was their parents, and they kind of drew a circle. Well, if we live within this radius... It's a little too close. They'll be over all the time. And if we live outside of this circle, well, then they'll have to spend the night. So there was kind of a happy medium <laughs> in the middle. So I don't know if they're marriage experts exactly, but it seems to work pretty good. So get out of your house. Now, even back in biblical times when they lived in extended family situations and lived on the same property, the man would usually spend about up to a year building his own addition onto his parents' house, a place just for them. Right, so geographically leave. He says economically leave as soon as possible. Man, you cannot be the head of your established home without getting out from your economic dependence on your parents. And I'm a little bit guilty when I was 21. There was a couple of months I was a little short on rent. But get out from under their, your dependence on them as soon as possible. Right? Establish your own home. Men provide. Then he says psychologically leave. Your relationship with your parents can't continue as parent-child. That tie must be broken. So a husband who's comparing his wife to his mom all the time hasn't psychologically left, right? And wives, you can't confide everything in your parents like you used to. Uh, now you, your husband is your head. You get the idea. The importance of leaving is that it provides the context for growing together. After both have left, that new partnership can really grow. A wife now comes before a husband's parents, and a husband is now the head of the woman and not her parents. They make their own decisions. And, and when couples don't leave in these ways, there can be a recipe for trouble and family relationships. Now, on the flip side of that, leaving does not mean abandoning, right? Christian children are responsible to honor their father and mother, not just until they move out of the house, but for life. Parents are still to be honored, but instead of in a parent-child dynamic relationship, now they're in more of a counsel and wisdom and advice and support role. And parents who have grown children should embrace that role for what it is. I think it's wonderful to have parents close by. We have our parents both close by. And just the mutual support and encouragement. And my dad called me this morning encouraging me with some thoughts about my message, and I appreciate that. And it's just great to... Uh, have that kind of relationship now as an adult child. And so adult children and adult parents who have adult children embrace that new dynamic as your relationship has changed. It doesn't mean abandoning. And then the other side of this verse, besides leaving, is to cleave. And when you leave, cleave. Jesus and the Apostle Paul both quote this verse when teaching on divorce and when teaching on the roles of a husband and wife. Marriage, as Jesus said, is what God has put together. Let no man separate. Cleave for life. 
have a oneness in your marriage, in intimacy and in every way, develop and cultivate that oneness. Some other practical implications of God's design for marriage is uh, the topic of singleness. And Steve is going to talk a lot about this in a few weeks, but just a brief word here. Marriage is the normal expectation for people in our culture, not just because we have to, but we do have to, right, (laughs) Uh, to continue. But singleness is the exception, according to 1 Corinthians 7. And it's a valid exception. God gives the gift of singleness for special devoted service for him to some people. But for most, the expectation and what God has given to us is marriage. And so what we see in our culture today is so different from that. You see people who just have no interest in marriage, that it's useless. And it's certainly propped up by, you know, modern times, not just the culture, but medicines, you know, birth control, um, abortion. There's a lot of different ways that make it easy for people to not really commit and get married. But God's pattern from the beginning is for one man and for one woman to come together in marriage for life and to have children and to train their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so that when they grow old, they will not depart from it. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. That's a great verse. So young singles or young widows get married, but choose wisely. Choose wisely. Marriage is for grown-ups. Jessalyn and I were 21, 19 when we got married. Yes, I married a teenager. (laughs) And I have to confess, while I felt like I was fairly mature for my age at the time, you know, you don't really know what you're getting into when you get married (laughs) young. Uh, but it's been great. I really love that we've gotten to experience all of our 20s and 30s together now. And yeah, now heading into our 40s. Um, but it's great. We got to know our grandparents when they were younger and healthier. Um, I think that's great. You know, when you get married older, you don't always get to know your spouse's grandparents because of age and time and, and sadness, you know. Um, so I really love that we got married young. You know, you see people waiting in their 30s and 40s. And for some people, that's right and that's good. But for some people, what we see in the culture is just an unwillingness to even consider marriage. There's just no sense of commitment. So when you look for someone to marry, what does the scripture say you should look for? Well, first of all, for a believer, it should be to another believer. Um, It's very clear in 2 Corinthians 6 that the apostle Paul, he says, he urges the believers there at Corinth to do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And he says, what part has a believer with an unbeliever? So a believer, when you are looking for someone, your relationship with someone, make sure it's a believer. And observe their lives long enough to know whether that's true or not. Uh, a recommendation from William McRae was summer and winter together. Not, not together in the same house, but know the person long enough to know what they're like throughout the seasons of a year. We barely made it at 11 months, but... <laughs> Summer and winter, know a person long enough to know whether they're the right person, whether they're a believer. And I would even add to that, and this is just my own word of advice, that if you're a believer, not just any believer, but someone who, as a man, that you can lead, someone who's at your maturity level, you wouldn't want a very mature believer with just a brand new believer, maybe. I don't know, that's my word, not the Lord's, but I would just encourage you in that way too. Well, this teaching on marriage also by way of teaching it in a positive way, also necessarily excludes some other behaviors and types of relationships and patterns we see in our culture today. Um, God designed sexual behavior 
to be good and enjoyable and right between man and woman in marriage. And so any other version of it, whether it be homosexual behavior, adultery, fornication, man-to-man marriage, woman-to-woman marriage, are perversions of God's design. And I know that's kind of hard to say and kind of hard to hear in today's culture. But it's from God's word. The Lord is the one who says it. Some say today that it's good and important to have sex before marriage to know how it's going to work out. Tragically, it produces the opposite effect. Dr. Howard Hendricks wrote, Studies show that promiscuity before marriage is the best preparation for promiscuity in marriage. And purity before marriage is the best guarantee for purity in marriage. Furthermore, those who can't get together without physical expression before their marriage will often have no physical expression after the first year. Why? Because they have never really built an adequate basis for their relationship. No real companionship, no real commonality, nothing that they can share other than the body. So when God forbids fornication, he does so with our best interests in mind. His rules are for our good. His design and his intent for relationships and marriage is best for us. It's what he knows is best for us, for our good and for his glory. God's design is for heterosexual marriage. He doesn't recognize male-to-male marriage. He doesn't recognize female-to-female marriage. I know our law does, but God doesn't. Society doesn't define what a marriage is. We receive marriage from God. He defines it. And he views marriage as man, one man, one woman for life. It also excludes adultery. It's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Do not commit adultery. Very clear. Don't fool around with fire, people. Don't even get close to the line. Don't cross boundaries. Don't do anything with the person. Here's a rule. Don't do anything with a person of the opposite sex or say or be around them, do anything with them that you wouldn't be totally comfortable sharing completely and openly with your spouse. Right? The grass isn't greener on the other side. 1 Corinthians 6, the Corinthians had to be told that they're temples of the Holy Spirit. And for them to go and be in union with someone else was a violation of that. And it was very serious in the Lord's eyes. Jesus even takes it a step further and says that to even contemplate adultery is forbidden. In Matthew 5, 28, But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Hebrews 13, 4, Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. You know, if those three words aren't enough to put the fear of God into you, I don't know what will. God will judge fornicators and adulterers. Marriage is to be permanent. It is for life. One flesh, never to be separated until death. But unfortunately, not just our world, but in many churches and Christians have never really studied these issues biblically and paid attention to the clear teachings of the word of God on marriage and divorce and remarriage. And it's sad, some churches offer very few teaching and advice or no advice or teaching at all, or perhaps even worse, the wrong teaching and wrong advice. You have teachers, churches out there who will say you can get divorced for any and every reason, right? You have churches out there who say you can't divorce for any and every reason at all. No reason, no exceptions. Some say you can get divorced under certain conditions and then never remarry. We here at Creekside hold a fourth view is that God's intention is for the permanence of marriage, but there are a couple of allowances or exceptions made in 
um, very, very difficult circumstances and situations that would allow a believer to divorce and remarry. And that is from the word of God. Listen to Matthew 19. This is from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered them and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Listen to Jesus' answer. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. <laughs> Isn't that the reaction of the world today? What the disciples' reaction was there? Well, if that's the way it has to be between man and woman, it's better not to get married. The Jews thought that divorce was better than adultery. Because for adultery and homosexuality and another list of sins I won't describe, they could be stoned under Old Testament law. Fortunately, we live in an era of grace now. But to the Jew, they thought divorce was better than adultery. But Jesus flips that on his head and he says, no, it's the same thing. When you divorce without cause and remarry or the spouse remarries, that's the same as adultery, perhaps even worse. Why does God hate divorce? He says so in Malachi 2. He says, I hate divorce. Why does he hate it? Well, first of all, it's because it breaks that solemn covenant that the couple has made before God Almighty. And God knows what's good for us in this life. He sees the harmful consequences and impact on the lives of people who have been through divorce or on those who are impacted by the divorce. And it's harmful. And so that's why God does not want divorce. Also, because the husband-wife relationship, according to Scripture, is to be a picture of the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and his church, his bride, as the scripture calls us. And you see in the example of the Old Testament prophet Hosea and his wife Gomer. Now, Jesus is making the exception there for sexual immorality or adultery. He says not to, not to divorce except for sexual immorality or adultery. But it's not like if someone committed adultery, the Lord's like, okay, divorce the person. He's not commanding us to get the divorce. He didn't tell Hosea, oh, your wife has become a harlot, go divorce her. But he, he wanted Hosea to reconcile with his wife. And it was to be a spiritual picture of how God was faithful and loving toward his rebellious, sinful people who were idolaters and left him like an unfaithful bride. But he reconciled them back to himself. And so even in the situations of unfaithfulness, I think God's heart is that there would be an attempt to reconcile first, even before claiming that exception for divorce. You know, if you had an infection in your arm, your first move probably wouldn't be to whack the whole arm off, right? You would treat that infection. You would try to heal that infection. Your very last resort would be to amputate the arm. Like if you were that guy out climbing who had his fingers trapped in the rocks while he was climbing alone, had no way to contact people, nobody could reach him, he eventually ended up 
sawing it off with his pocket knife. Sorry. But that was the extreme situation. And that's how we should treat divorce, too. You know, God has intended the permanence of it. And so it should be our last resort. God does give the exception for unrepentant um, adultery. You also see in 1 Corinthians 7 a situation where an unbelieving partner is leaving the believing partner but not giving them a divorce. And so you here you have the faithful partner just kind of stuck with no option because that unbeliever has left and won't, won't give him a divorce. What's, what are they to do? And he says, you can divorce. But if the unbeliever is willing to stay with you, live with them. How about remarriage? I'm really opening up the can of worms today, aren't I? <laughs> if you have any difficult follow-up questions, Steve will be back next week. <laughs> okay, remarriage is permitted for that faithful partner when the divorce was on biblical grounds. And if it wasn't a divorce on biblical grounds, I'd just say it's like any other sin. Confess it to the Lord and get right with the Lord and then live faithfully with that partner from that time forward. I don't believe it's that God wants you to have shame for the rest of your life or, you know, it's like he's holding it over your head for the rest of your life. But if you have been through a divorce and it, and it wasn't on biblical grounds, just confess it to the Lord, get right with the Lord, and then move forward from that day forward to live faithfully for the Lord, to live faithfully with your partner. Because God is a God of grace. He shows us grace. He showed us tremendous grace when he saved us, and he shows us a lot of grace throughout our lives. It wouldn't be any other way. But choose wisely when you get married, right? Someone who appears to be a believer might prove themselves to be an unbeliever over time. I've also heard it said uh, that uh, how people are looking for the perfect partner, the perfect spouse. If they just find that person, everything will be good, right? Well, we all know who have been in marriage for a while. Even if you found who you thought was that perfect person, give it some time and you change or they change and things aren't as perfect as you thought they once were, right? There's not going to be that perfect partner. The grass isn't greener on the other side. But faithfully, in the Lord, live together. And what, what is so good and hopeful about Christian marriage is that we have help. We have hope in Christ. The world doesn't have the help and hope that we have. We have the Lord. We have the Holy Spirit in us to help us through our shortcomings and problems in marriage. Even, we can work through difficult problems in our relationships and get a little closer to what God intended for marriage. We can't perfectly in this life, but we can get a little closer to what he intended for our good when we depend on him and depend on each other as a local church body. And if you're, I just put the appeal out there that if you're struggling in your marriage or considering divorce, considering adultery, divorce and considering remarriage, and you need wisdom and help to navigate these, maybe you're just in a difficult marriage with a difficult person to live with, get help. Get advice. Get biblical counsel for someone, from someone you can trust. Or Steve or one of the elders or a Christian counselor, Christian biblical counseling, not just any counselor, but a Christian counselor. And get that wisdom and advice you need to navigate through those waters. A lot of marriages can be saved. Sometimes you're in the, in the thick of it and you think there's no hope for the future, but with God all things are possible. And I would like to think that the divorce statistics for true believers who seek the help of the Holy Spirit, <laughs> the divorce statistics are a lot better for those people than those out in the world. They say it's all the same. I don't believe that. They say 50% in the world, 50% in the church. I'd say in the church, if you were two believers 
who have the Holy Spirit in you, and you're, getting, and you're looking in the Bible for help, and you're getting sound counsel from other believers, you can make it. You can make it. Now, there's all kinds of situations, and I can't get into every kind of situation this morning. Again, follow up with Steve. But I'm going to close with this last verse in verse 25 about the innocence of that first marriage. And it's a beautiful statement. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. I love that description because it tells me there was a time when, before sin entered the world, before sin wrecked relationships and left a train wreck of relationships, you even see just in Genesis, right, you get um, husband and wife fighting right away, right after they sin, when God confronts them about their sin. You see Cain and Abel, uh, brothers, you know, Cain killing Abel, you see adultery, you see incest, you see just homosexuality so bad in a city that God actually had to rain fire and brimstone down on it to bring judgment on that city. And you just see the wreckage of sin in our culture and on our relationships. But I love this verse because it tells me there was a time when there was no barrier between God and man, that there was no barrier between man and woman, that relationships between man and his God and between man and his woman were perfect the way God intended them to be. And sin is what has brought the barrier between us and God. Sin is what's brought barriers and struggle and strife into our relationships. For Adam and Eve, initially, there was no shame. There was no guilt. There was no problems. Adam lovingly led his wife. Eve respected her husband and submitted to her husband, and it was perfect. They perfectly complemented and compensated for each other in their shortcomings. And you know, God didn't leave us in our brokenness. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring down that barrier between man and God and to help us break down those barriers in our relationships. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. A couple authors in their writings um, just had some rich thoughts about how this passage in Genesis 2 speaks to Christ and his sacrifice for us to break down those barriers. Um, says, God caused a far deeper sleep than Adam experienced to Jesus Christ, the sleep of death by crucifixion. And that Adam was seeking a helper, a bride. Christ, too, came to seek a bride, the church. And out of Adam's wound in his side was made his wonderful life's partner to complete him. And as Jesus hung on the cross, his side was pierced by a spear, out of which flowed his wonderful, precious life's blood to redeem us to himself as his bride. As Adam with joy claimed his bride as his own, God too with great joy claims the church as his bride. You know the Bible begins and ends with a wedding? It's kind of neat, isn't it? Genesis 2, you have here the first wedding, Adam and Eve. Revelation 19, you have the marriage supper of the Lamb when the church is all together at once with the bridegroom, Christ, and there is celebration in heaven because now we are one with God in heaven. How wonderful that is. And then uh, we'll get into the next couple of weeks, the roles of men and women in their uh, marriage relationships and what the Bible has to say about that. Because marriage represents the relationship between Christ and his church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's such a high calling, isn't it? How wonderful it is that God has seen our brokenness, seen the destruction, sin, has brought upon what he has intended for our marriages. And yet he's redeeming marriages today. He sent his son to redeem us to himself. And by that same power, and by the Holy Spirit in us, and by his word, we have help and hope 
that marriages can make it today. I believe that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's so clear, crystal clear, and yet, Lord, we get distracted by what the world says and their perceptions of what relationships should be. And when they say, Joe, just get out of that relationship, Lord, we, we confess sometimes we have sinful thoughts and attitudes, and we've not always done right according to your word. Lord, we thank you that you're a God of mercy. You don't always give us what we deserve. You're a God of grace. You've lavished on us what we don't deserve. And thank you for the Lord Jesus who willingly offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross to redeem us to yourself. That barrier's been brought down. We thank you and praise you for that. And we thank you that there's help and hope for our marriages. That in the midst of a sinful, perverse world where wickedness abounds and everybody does what's right in their own eyes as it was in the times of the judges, you call us to live faithfully. Man, one man, one woman, in a lifelong, lasting commitment in marriage. Help us to do that, Lord. If there's some here this morning who need help, Lord, help us to be a church where they can find that help. Help us to help them. And Lord, we just thank you again for the Lord Jesus, our Savior, and we take this bread and cup now in remembrance of what he did for us on the cross, his body broken, his blood shed, to pay that great price to redeem us. In Jesus' name, we give thanks. Amen. We're about to enter into a time where we can, as we worship, as we come before God, that we have a chance to come up and to take the bread and the cup. You know, one of the things I love every week, we have a chance to, as we close, come again and put our eyes on the cross. Um, How awesome is it that Jesus, he left his perfect home and he came down to this broken world. He left the relationship that he had, that closeness with the Father to come down to take our sins and our burdens on himself. And so as, as we deal with the brokenness and the sin and the hurt in this world, how awesome it is just to come and remember that here's the cross, here's mercy and love that's just held out before all of us that we can come and we can take freely. So if you're a believer in Christ, we invite you uh, to come up to take the bread and the juice uh, after a time of, of reflection and remembering what Jesus has done.